This is Tanakh. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 16, Exodus chapters 5 through 8. So Moshe and Haron go to Paro and throw down the gauntlet. Thus says Adonai, the God of Israel, Send free my people that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. To which Paro replies, Who is Adonai that I should hearken to his voice and send Israel free? I do not know Adonai. Moreover, Israel I will not send free. And so the grand game begins. Paro commands, No more straw for the slaves. But the brick quota remains. When the Jews cry out to Paro, Paro replies, Lax you are. Lax. Therefore you say, Let us go. Let us slaughter. Offerings. To Adonai. So now, go serve. No straw will be given to you, and the full measure in bricks you must give back. This produces the desired effect. The Jews complain to Moshe, who then goes to complain to God. God gives Moshe a bit of a rousing speech about promises, forefathers, promised lands, and freedom, which Moshe delivers to the Jews, who basically tell him, Go fuck yourself, San Diego. So God tells Moshe to, in essence, forget the Jews. God is used to hearing this kind of reply, and then he should go to Paro directly and then throw down the gauntlet again. But then, as the story is about to get interesting, there's this weird genealogy list interlude where we finally get the family history of Moshe and Aharon and finally discover who his parents are. And then we're right back into the action, where God tells Moshe, See, I will make you as a god for Pharaoh, and Aharon your brother will be your prophet. You are to speak all that I command you, and Aharon your brother is to speak to Pharaoh so that he may send free the children of Israel from his land. But I, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will make my signs and my portents many in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not hearken to you, so I will set my hand against Egypt, and I will bring out my forces, my people, the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, with great acts of judgment, the Egyptians will know that I am Adonai, when I stretch out my hand over Egypt and bring the children of Israel out from their midst. Oh yeah, it's on. So the staff tossing starts, but Paro is not impressed by the snake shifting, so God tells Moshe, take it up a notch. But Paro is not impressed. His magicians can make water into blood too. And even after a week of blood water, Paro is apathetic. But then come the frogs. And even after Paro's magicians conjure them too, they cannot get rid of them. Paro sends word to Moshe and Aharon. Okay, you can go and offer your sacrifices. But when the frogs abate, guess what happens? Paro changes his mind. Game on again. So then come the gnats, which, by the way, Paro's magicians could not reproduce. So the magicians tell Paro, this is the finger of God, but Paro is unconcerned. But when the biting drives only the Egyptians mad with itching, Paro has Moshe and Aharon summoned and tells him, okay, for real this time, you can go and offer your sacrifices. But then once the gnats disappear, guess who changes his mind? So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. So 
So I want to talk about two topics uh, this episode. The first is something that even my own children know is wrong. And the second is something about which my children have a, a vague appreciation, but not in any really organized fashion. What I'm talking about is collective punishment and game theory. First, collective punishment. Article 33 of the Fourth Geneva Convention reads as follows. No protected person may be punished for an offense he or she has not personally committed. Collective penalties and likewise all measures of intimidation or of terrorism are prohibited. Pillages prohibited. Reprisals against protected persons and their property are prohibited. Article 33 is derived from Article 50 of the Hague Regulations of 1899 and 1907, which says, No general penalty, pecuniary or otherwise, shall be inflicted upon the population on account of the acts of individuals for which they cannot be regarded as jointly and severally responsible. And here's my seven-year-old daughter Hila explaining why collective punishment is wrong. I think collective punishment is wrong because... It's taking it out on the people that are innocent, and that's not fair. Hila's explanation sounds very much like an argument deployed quite effectively by Avraham when God set out to destroy Sodom in episode 6, I mean Genesis chapter 18. The earliest evidence of collective punishment was recorded over a millennia before Avraham in the Shu Jing, one of the five classics, which is a compilation of speeches of major figures and a record of events in ancient China. The compilation was attributed to Confucius and various authors. The Shu Jing recounts how officers during the Shang and Zhou dynasties would threaten to exterminate the families of their subordinates if they did not follow orders. The Shang dynasty lasted for about 600 years, starting in the 16th century BCE, and the Zhou from 1045 BCE to 256 BCE. There are records of extremely harsh punishments being meted out by tyrants throughout Chinese history, but the 14th century Hongwu emperor penalized treason and rebellion with the punishment of, quote, nine familial exterminations, which meant that an individual found guilty of these offenses would not only suffer death by slow slicing, but so would their parents, grandparents, brethren by birth, as well as sworn brothers, children, grandchildren, those living with the criminal regardless of surname, uncles, as well as the children of brethren. Though the punishment by nine familial exterminations was not widely applied, it was only repealed by the Qing in 1905. So as recently as, say, 110 years ago, if you were a treasonous rebel, they would deal with you the same way Capone wanted to handle Elliot Ness. I want you to get this fuck where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss out his ass. So, as I said at the outset, even my kids agree that collective punishment is not a good thing. And yet, this is precisely what God hands down to the Egyptians, punishing everyone in Egypt for the recalcitrance of but one man, Paro. Now, though God did see to Abraham's argument vis-a-vis Sodom, God is not so resolute about this matter. Though Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16 clearly states that, quote, fathers are not to be put to death for sons, sons are not to be put to death for fathers, every man for his own sin alone is to be put to death, there are almost a half dozen other places in the Tanakh where God states the opposite. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, for example. And Adonai passed before his face and called out, Adonai, Adonai God, showing mercy showing favor, long-suffering in anger, abundant in loyalty and faithfulness, keeping loyalty to the thousandth generation, 
bearing iniquity, rebellion and sin, yet not clearing, clearing, the guilty, calling to account the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons and upon sons' sons, to the third and fourth generation. This business of smiting to the third and fourth generation sounds a bit like nine familial exterminations, except without the little cuts. Although one could say that God is merely responding in kind. After all, when Moshe came to present God's demand, Paro's first response was to punish all the Jews collectively by denying them straw for their bricks. So it kind of seems like tit for tat. And although this idiom can elicit some smutty associations, it also comes into play in a big way in game theory, particularly the game used to illustrate how game theory works, the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma demonstrates why two people might not cooperate, even though it's in their best interest to do so. Here's how the game was formally presented in 1950 by Albert Tucker, a Canadian mathematician. Two members of a criminal gang are arrested and imprisoned. Each prisoner is in solitary confinement with no means of speaking to or exchanging messages with the other. The police admit they don't have enough evidence to convict the pair on the principal charge. They plan to sentence both to the year in prison on a lesser charge. Simultaneously, the police offer each prisoner a Faustian bargain. If he testifies against his partner, he will go free while the partner will get three years in prison on the main charge. Oh, yes, there is a catch. If both prisoners testify against each other, both will be sentenced to two years in jail. Now, back in 1950, when this idea was uh, kicked around, the thinking was, at least in terms of the Rand Corporation, who were the original uh, folks to think about game theory, they were pretty much on side in the Cold War to help America get an edge over the Soviets. So for them, game theory was about getting a leg up in the Cold War. Although there are other uh, uses or other interpretations or other spins put on game theory. Here's one from Richard Dawkins, ethologist, evolutionary biologist, author, and atheist, with the lessons he learned from playing the Prisoner's Dilemma game. Why was Tit for Tat so astonishingly successful? Firstly, tit for tat is nice. It's never the first to defect. Now, this came as quite a surprise to some of the experts who sent in programs, because they had imagined that the way to succeed in this game was to make subtle opening moves of defection. Secondly, tit for tat is not envious. It doesn't measure its success by how well it's doing against its immediate opponent, but by its total winnings at the end of the competition. Tit for tat, in fact, cannot win in an individual game against an opponent. It can only do at least as well. And tit-for-tat does well only when its opponent is doing well too. It's fundamentally a cooperative strategy. Thirdly, tit-for-tat is a forgiving strategy. It forgives as swiftly as it retaliates. And fourthly, it's simple, easy to read, uncomplicated. In a sense, this is the game Moshe and Paro are playing. Each time, Paro has the choice to cooperate or defect. And for the second and third round, Paro pretends to cooperate but really defects. And each time, Moshe responds with a tit-for-tat strategy. So when Paro chooses to defect, Moshe too defects. Or in the peace war game variation, Moshe responds with war. Or in the Egyptian bondage variation, Moshe responds with plague. What is interesting in the Egyptian bondage variation is that Paro can never reach what game theorists call the Nash equilibrium. 
The Nash Equilibrium is a solution in which each player is assumed to know the strategy of the other player, and no player has anything to gain by changing only their own strategy unilaterally. So basically, the outcome is guaranteed to be the same each round, as the first player, in this case Paro, is making the best decision he can, taking into account Moshe's decision, and Moshe is making the best decision he can, taking into account Paro's decision. Except, except. One might justifiably ask if Paro is making any decisions at all here, as the Torah tells us 11 times that God has hardened Paro's heart. So Paro is going to defect regardless of how Moshe responds in the previous round. Now this is a very evocative image, this hardening of hearts. And it has nothing to do with a bad diet. And it, like I said, begs the question of free will. And we talked about this kind of before in the earlier episode of Avraham. Let us, for argument's sake, say that Paro had a supple heart, unossified by God. Confronted by Moshe's parlor tricks that could easily be duplicated by his own magicians, Paro's dismissive reaction was to be expected. But when blood was followed by frogs, why wouldn't Paro, now confronted by the awesome power of the Lord of hosts, just capitulate? Could not the plagues be understood as God holding a gun to Paro's head, compelling him to yield? Well, if you've ever been to the movies, you know what the response is to that question. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. And that's how you get Capone. If Paro's heart is unhardened, these plagues are only the opening gambit. It is not surprising that Paro continues to be unmoved and thus defect, and to be further unmoved by Moshe's choice to defect as well. He defects because he is a king, and he does not give in so quickly to the son of slaves. He likes his slaves. He needs his slaves. Egypt needs its slaves. And as he is facing down an opponent, he expects nothing less but tit for tat. So to the question of Paro's hard heart, it is less a matter of free will as of being resolute. He's not concerned about Moshe's will unless it is set to accede to his own. So hard heart or not, Paro will stand firm and defect Defect, defect. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextjew.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 17 on Exodus chapters 9 through 12. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.